take your Bibles, if you would, and turn to the book of Acts chapter 24, and let's stand together, Acts 24, for our scripture reading, and we're going to read beginning in verse number 1, Acts 24, and verse 1, and uh, are the doors open because of COVID, or are they just open because they're open? Does anybody know? Let's go ahead and close the doors there in the back, if you would, and staff and faculty, if you'll keep an eye on that for me this semester. Uh, I think it's probably normally the better policy unless we're doing something for health and then I'll close them anyways. So uh, we'll... <laughs> Every pastor has little things that, you know, kind of get them. So one of mine is, is open doors because then people walk by when you're preaching and things. And, and uh, usually uh, I check to make sure the lights are fixed and the temperature's right. And I just believe we ought to have everything right in God's house when we stand up to preach. So uh, thank you for doing that. All right, Acts chapter 24, and for the sake of context, we'll read verses 1 through 16. And I'd like to speak on the subject this morning, serving God with a good conscience. Serving God with a good conscience. And we're in revival, and the conscience is a tool of the Holy Spirit uh, that is convicted so that we might draw closer to the Lord. And I want you to get this truth this morning. I hope you have your note takers journals and you're going to need to jot some things down along the way here. Acts chapter 24 verse 1. And after five days Ananias the high priest descended with the elders and with a certain orator named Tertullus who informed the governor against Paul. And when he was called forth Tertullus began to accuse him saying seeing that we by thee enjoy great quietness and that very worthy deeds are done unto this nation by thy providence we accept it always and in all places most noble felix with all thankfulness notwithstanding that i be not further tedious unto thee i pray thee that thou wouldest hear of us thy clemency a few words for we have found this man speaking of paul the apostle a pestilent fellow and a mover of the sedition among all the jews throughout the world and a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes who also hath gone about to profane the temple whom we took and would have judged according to our law but the chief captain Lysias came upon us and with great violence took him away out of our hands commanding his accusers to come unto thee by examining of whom thyself mayest take knowledge of all these things whereof we accuse him and the Jews also assented saying that these things were so then Paul after that the governor had beckoned unto him to speak, answered, For as much as I know that thou hast been of many years a judge unto this nation, I do the more cheerfully answer for myself, because that thou mayest understand that there are yet but twelve days since I went up to Jerusalem for to worship. And they neither found me in the temple disputing with any man, neither raising up the people, neither in the synagogues nor in the city, Neither can they prove the things whereof they now accuse me. But this I confess unto thee, that after the way which they call heresy, so worship I the God of my fathers, believing all things which are written in the law and in the prophets, and have hope toward God, which themselves also, they themselves also know, that there shall be a resurrection of the dead, both of the just and of the unjust. And herein do I exercise myself, to have always a conscience void of offense toward God and toward men. Would you read verse 16, please? Ready? Begin. And herein do I exercise myself to have always a conscience void of offense toward God and toward men. 
Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this passage of Scripture, and I pray that we would be a people uh, exercising ourselves to live life with a conscience void of offense toward God and toward men. Give these students discernment today, and may this message be something they take with them all their life. Perhaps this verse could be a life verse for someone wanting to live for thee. Now, Lord, we ask that your Holy Spirit would apply the truths, and we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. In our text this morning, we see Ananias and Tertullius accusing the Apostle Paul. We see that they bring the Apostle before the governor of Caesarea, a man by the name of Felix. And so you have Tertullus, a great orator of the first century. You might liken him unto an ACLU attorney, someone that is accusing the people of God, someone that is finding Christianity to be the problem, someone that finds fundamental truth like the resurrection to be troublesome to him. And he comes with the religious elite of the day to accuse the Apostle Paul. And they accuse him of being a pestilent fellow. Let's say those two words together. A pestilent, pestilent fellow. May I remind you that if you intend to stand for Jesus Christ in the ministry of your life, that it may be that the majority of the people in America or Canada or the Philippines or wherever you minister view you as the problem. They're going to view you as a fundamental Bible believer, as a pestilent fellow or woman. And you and I, having an ego and wanting to be accepted, generally speaking, will then have a temptation. Do I want to be one of those real strong, fundamental Bible-believing Christians that just kind of stands out? Or maybe I'll have the blend-in Baptist church. After all, no one wants to be called pestilent. No one wants to be viewed as a troublemaker. I think I'm going to take a little bit of a different approach, maybe a different Bible version, maybe a little different way of preaching, just more, a little more humor maybe. And Maybe I'll sit on a bench. Maybe we'll just have some, you know, some songs that aren't so doctrinal in their way. And certainly many face that temptation, and many are failing as they face that temptation. And you must think now about this question. When you were accused of being one of those strong Christians and one of those guys that believes that life begins at conception, one of those guys that believes that marriage is between a man and a woman, one of those guys that says that Jesus is the only way to heaven, and they begin to criticize you, and they will. Will you bend? Will you bow the knee to the world? Or will you stand, as Paul the Apostle said, by the faith of his fathers? Will you be true to the truth of the Word of God? Well, the Apostle Paul after being accused of being this troublemaker, has opportunity to give his defense. And he clearly says that he was never in the temples or the synagogues as he had been accused. He clearly states that the things that they had said were by and large untrue. He does say, however, that he pleads guilty to being a part of the heresy or the group of people called the way. This was a term for the believers of the first century. They were people of the way of Jesus Christ. And he said, now, if you want to accuse me of being one of those that believes in the bodily resurrection of believers, I am guilty. He said, I am guilty of believing that fundamental of the faith. And 
in the process of explaining his position, we come to our text this morning, verse number 16, which I find to be very relevant to the subject of the great awakening that we desire, the week of awakening. And the Bible says in verse 16, and herein do I exercise myself to have always a conscience void of offense toward God and toward men. Now I want to challenge you this semester to live this verse. To live a life with a conscience that is void of offense. We call it a clear conscience. And I want to speak to you for a few moments about the subject of the conscience. And as you're taking notes, I want you to jot down, first of all, the definition of the conscience. What exactly is the conscience? I believe it was Warren Wiersbe who said uh, that it is a window that lets the light into the heart. It is, it is the revealer of the manner and motives of man. It is the Holy Spirit's ministry to prick the conscience and to bring light into our heart through the conscience. And Paul often mentioned the fact that he desired to live with a good conscience. Now there is no softer pillow than a good conscience. There's no better way to live the Christian life than with a good conscience. And so let's consider the types of consciences that we read about in the New Testament. First of all, there is the good conscience. And the Bible speaks of this on many occasions, Acts 23 and 1. And Paul, earnestly beholding the council, said, Men and brethren, I have lived in all good conscience before God until this day. 1 Timothy 1.19, holding faith and a good conscience, which some, having put away uh, concerning faith, have made shipwreck. We've seen many students' lives go completely to shipwreck because they put away their good conscience. They stop pursuing the good conscience. They stop listening to the Holy Spirit of God. 2 Timothy 1 and 3, I thank God whom I serve for my forefathers with pure conscience that without ceasing I have remembrance of thee in my prayers night and day. Now this good conscience is developed primarily by the Word of God and the Holy Spirit of God. A good conscience is developed as the Word pricks your heart the Holy Spirit brings that word to remembrance, and you are mindful of the Word of God. Brother Getch's illustration last night was masterful. Uh, if you're having trouble with the number eight, then you've got to replace it with the number two. And this is what it means to be transformed by the renewing of your mind through the Word of God. And this is how one develops the right kind of a conscience, through the Word of God. It, it is not fundamentally developed by a list of standards. Now understand, I believe in lists. I live by lists. I have to-do lists. I have prayer lists. I have sermon lists. I'm not against lists. Uh, we have lists of, of uh, behavioral requirements for our school and for our college, and, and those are necessary. We want everybody to kind of know, hey, this is what time class starts. This is kind of what we expect you to wear. If you're going to have a beard, keep it trimmed, all that kind of stuff. It's fine. I don't have a problem with that. And, and for those of you that do have trouble with standards, and one day when, when and if you become a leader of a school or a church or whatever, you'll find it necessary to have some similar type things uh, for the purpose of order and educational process. But those lists do not create a clear conscience. They do not cultivate a spiritual life necessarily. 
Many people look fine outwardly who are struggling spiritually inwardly. So the good conscience is not necessarily developed by a list. It is developed by the Holy Spirit at work in your heart. Sometimes we call it by the grace of God. Grace is a disposition created by the Holy Spirit of God. And I want you to turn in your Bible quickly to Titus chapter 2 and verse 11. And we'll come back in a moment to Acts, but just Titus 2 verse 11. I want you to understand how you will grow spiritually, how you will help others grow spiritually. Titus 2.11, it says, For the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world. So the grace of God, that's the inner working of the Holy Spirit, teaches us. It teaches us. And if you're saved, the Holy Spirit does teach you. And he leads you into righteousness. He leads you away from wickedness. The Holy Spirit teaches us to deny ungodliness and worldly lusts and to live soberly and righteously and godly in this present world. We're going to teach and preach it from this pulpit all semester long. But if you're not listening to the still, small voice of the Holy Spirit of God within your heart, it doesn't matter that you're a Bible college student. You can still live like a reprobate if you're not allowing the Holy Spirit to lead you on a daily, minute-by-minute, moment-by-moment, hour-by-hour process. And so the good conscience is cultivated by the inner working of the Holy Spirit of God. There's a second kind of conscience in the New Testament. And by way of this first point, I want you to jot this down as well. That is the defiled conscience. The defiled conscience. Now, the defiled conscience is mentioned in Titus chapter 1 and verse 15. You might want to turn there, Titus 1, 15, which says... Unto the pure all things are pure, but unto them that are defiled and unbelieving is nothing pure. But even their mind and their conscience is defiled. Now there are some words that, that you and I might say and just in the normal course of vocabulary, but someone whose conscience is defiled, they immediately think of the dirty context. They immediately think of, of another meaning to that phrase or to that word. Their conscience is defiled. You see, uh, unto, uh, unto the pure, all things are pure, but unto them that are defiled uh, and unbelieving, nothing is pure. And the Bible says they profess that they know God, but in works they deny Him. Now the man with the defiled conscience is a man whose heart is not receiving the light as regularly these days. The person with a good conscience, when the Holy Spirit is convicting them, when the preaching is coming from the pulpit, it's shining into their heart. The defiled conscience we might liken unto a dirty window. They're still getting some truth here and there, but it is not as clear. They are not receiving the direction from the Lord as clearly as they could because of the sin that they are tolerating in their life. They hear a lot of preaching, they know a lot of truth, but there's some stuff they still see uh, and think about on TikTok or on social media. There's some defilement that's going on in their life. There's some pornography. There's some jealousy. There's some envy. And because of that, their conscience is defiled. And whereby one person in chapel might immediately feel the work of the Holy Spirit and immediately sense a need for repentance, the person with the defiled conscience, they're, they're a little slower a little slower to receive it 
because there's a cloudiness within their heart based upon the sin that they are tolerating. And the defiled conscience is not a safe guide for your life. The defiled conscience is a dangerous place to be. But sadly, there's another kind of conscience in the Bible, and that is, thirdly, the evil conscience. The evil conscience. Now, this one's found in Hebrews 10, 22. Hebrews 10, 22 says, Let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. And the, the picture goes back to the Old Testament priests who washed their entire bodies before they entered into the temple. And God says that he wants us to be a people whose lives, whose, uh, whose uh, 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 spiritual lives are washed and sprinkled from an evil conscience. Now, the evil conscience is the result of consistent sin. Uh, the evil conscience may be reflected in the life of Lot in the Old Testament who pitched his tent towards Sodom. And there was an early defilement, but then we find Lot in the gates of Sodom uh, condoning Sodom and living a life that was indicative of one whose conscience had become very evil. And sometimes even Christians can get to that place where because they've tolerated sin in their life, they've come accustomed to it, their, their ability to think in terms of right and wrong uh, becomes shattered and they, they cannot make good decisions because at first when they were first saved they had a good conscience, they were alive to the word of God, then a little sin crept in and they began to look at some things and think about some things and defilement came in and then because of tolerance of that their conscience became mostly evil. The way that they thought was against the word of God. And you imagine preachers that every time I stand before this pulpit or Brother Getz stands before this pulpit, we are speaking to every kind of conscience. Wouldn't it be great if everybody in the Lancaster Baptist Church always had only a good conscience? But that is not the case. Why is it that you wake up one day and they'll say, this church member did this or this college student ran off and did this? It did not happen overnight. Normally, there was the process of allowing some defilement into their heart Normally there was a bad thought or a bad action, something that wasn't repented of. Uh, they desperately needed revival, uh, but they allowed those things in their heart until it became an evil conscience, and they began to think more and more, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do this, I'm going to sneak away and do this, I'm going to go buy this, I'm going to get involved in this. And, and, and their thought process, the conscience was no longer reliable because they had allowed sin to dominate. That is why we give altar calls at Lancaster Baptist Church. It is an opportunity to come back to the place of a good conscience. There is a fourth type of conscience, and this is one that is sometimes theologically challenging to me, and I want you to think about this. It is called the seared conscience. The seared conscience. 1 Timothy 4, 1. Now the Spirit speaketh expressly that in the last Days, the latter times, some shall depart from the faith, giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of devils, speaking lies and hypocrisy, having their conscience seared, their conscience seared with a hot iron. Now, this person's conscience is so limited in its ability to feel the conviction of God that this person even will accept and sometimes even propagate false doctrine. And I say it's theologically challenging. 
I believe there's an applicability here to the saved, but also this would speak of perhaps someone that never was saved. Now, how many of you have ever burned your finger around a stove? Anybody else, or am I the only one? I'll tell you what, nothing hurts like that. You get butter, you get ice, you do everything you can possibly do. And sometimes my wife, she loves to cook, but every once in a while she'll burn her hand somehow. And, and if you've ever burned your hand on the stove, maybe even just your thumb, you go through all the painful process, and then after a while it just kind of, uh, it, it scars over, it, it becomes dead skin. You can put a pin in it sometimes to a certain degree, not even feel it. Why? Because you have seared it. And I don't understand how long this takes or how many times one must quench the Holy Spirit in the process. But it appears in the study of Scripture that someone who at one time had a good conscience toward God, they allowed some defilement, just a few bad things here and there they thought they could handle. Their conscience became very evil and overly productive in thoughts that were evil and and then their actions became sinful and their lifestyle reflects a searing of their conscience. In other words, they don't ever go forward. They don't even feel when you're preaching. They, they, don't even have a, they don't even have a sense of their own wickedness because they have been in that sinful state and they have accepted it. And the Bible indicates that those with the seared conscience, and I have seen this with my own eyes. I've seen alleged preachers. I've seen Bible college students that they get rebellious. They begin to complain about this and that. They begin to take advantage of relationships. They begin to get involved in sin to the point they, they develop an accommodating theological system that would, that would enable their lifestyle. And so they will even speak against the doctrine of holiness. They will even speak against the true doctrines of grace. They will even speak against fundamental Bible-believing Christianity. And you be very careful of those who would mock other men of God because oftentimes the reason is there is an immorality, there is a sinfulness in their life, and the only way they can justify their lifestyle is by accommodating theology or twisting theology to make them feel better about the way they're living. And often the reason there's such, such animus toward the fundamentals of the faith or even towards fundamental preachers is because they are living with a seared conscience. Do not be, a, do not be surprised if 10 years from now you hear of some preachers who come out as gay. Don't let that cause you to fall. Do not be surprised if some leave their spouse. Do not be surprised if some fall into immorality. We're already seeing it in much of the CCM world. We're, we're hearing of it, but sometimes we hear about it in the Bible-believing uh, world as well. Why? Because they left the place of a good conscience. Why? It, to me, it is ridiculous that churches no longer have revival. We desperately need weeks like this. We desperately need chapel. Why? so that we can keep a good conscience with God. It's just a short trip to an evil conscience. It's just a little while longer to a seared uh, conscience. And here we see the Apostle Paul. He's being accused of being this terrible troublemaker in society. And he's able to say, guys, say what you want to say, but my conscience is clear. Hey, listen, if you get a note this afternoon you need to get to Dr. Getch's office immediately. It will be a very good thing if you can say, well, I don't know what it's about. It might be about my car, it might be about my class, might be, but I know it's not about sinful living because I'm right with God. That's a good, good thing. This is what Paul was saying. 
my conscience is clear. I just want to challenge you students. Besides all the rules and all the things, I could get up here and preach a thousand rules. It's really unnecessary if you would just determine today to live your life with a good conscience. And that is done as you obey every impulse of the Holy Spirit. Obey every impulse of the Holy Spirit. Let's say it together. Obey every impulse of the Holy Spirit. Say it again. Obey every Right? Grieve not the Spirit. Just as he's speaking to you. Oh, don't say that. Oh, don't go there. Oh, be careful. Just yield to the Holy Spirit of God. Now we see the definition. Let's notice secondly then the development of the conscience. How many of you would say, Brother Chapel, God is my witness. I want to live my life with a good conscience. How many of you are with me? Come on, first, first week of the semester. If you're here saying, well, I, I kind of want to live with a defiled conscience, you, you have two choices, the altar or the back door, all right? That's your two choices. Because we're not going to play games with that kind of an attitude. I mean, if there's someone, if you're out here, I just want to come to California and hit the beach and live a life of sin, look it, go to, go to USC or something. Don't, don't put that on West Coast Baptist College. But I would assume that 99% of the people in here would say, well, man, I didn't come here to mess up my life. I want to live with a good conscience. And if you do, I want to help you with that today. How does that happen? Well, notice what Paul says in verse 16. And herein do I, what's the word say? Exercise. Herein do I what? Exercise. Herein do I exercise. Now, some of you go, well, I don't like exercise. I don't, you know, most people don't like exercise. I don't really like exercise. I do it. But I'm going to tell you what, that if there's something that matters in your life and you say, I want to live with a good conscience, it's not going to happen by osmosis. You're just not going to automatically be always right with God. You're going to have to have discipline in the Christian life. You're going to have to exercise yourself toward this goal. And, and so I want you to take notes here. First of all, exercise requires a goal. Exercise requires a goal. Now, some of you, when you get older, hopefully you're not having this problem now, but some of you, when you get a little older, you might be like some of us who are already a little older, and you'll go to the doctor, and they'll draw blood, and they'll say, you have, uh, you have a little more cholesterol than you should have. Your cholesterol is high. Do you have high cholesterol, Dr. Rasmussen? No. That's amazing to me. It's amazing that you don't have high cholesterol, but I'm glad you don't. <laughs> Brother Rasmussen is a specimen of physical shape. That's why he doesn't have cholesterol. It's just guys like me that have it. Now, when they tell you that you have high cholesterol, this is what they'll tell you. You need to start exercising, losing some weight. You don't want cholesterol building up in your blood veins. They give you a big, sometimes they'll show you movies, they'll give you booklets. I mean, you will walk out of the office thinking you are almost dead because you have cholesterol. It's kind of depressing, really. <laughs> so when they tell you that you have cholesterol, and our deacons of our church, they send me for a physical exam every year to this clinic. Every year I'm going to go in a couple weeks, and they always want me to tell them how I'm doing when I get back. They, they just think it's so funny that I go there, and they, they want to make sure that I'm doing well. And I, Sometimes I think they're sick. I'm not really sure why they do that, but I think it's because they love me. But, but uh, they, I have to go in there and have all this blood drawn and get all this, these things attached and do all these EKGs and such. And and, uh, and they kind of scare you a little bit, and they always tell you the same thing. You need to exercise, you need to lose some weight uh, so that you can take care of that cholesterol. 
Most people that exercise have some kind of a goal in mind. It's either to lose some weight, to look a little better, maybe it's medical, but, but exercise typically has some goal involved. For example, if you're on the basketball team, we, we're going to exercise because we're, we're, so, we're smaller and we're never going to win a game unless we're better conditioned than the other team. And so we really work at that all the time. If you're a football player, you want to lift weights, you're exercising because look at the first time you get hit by a linebacker, you're going to break if you're not really in good shape. And so exercise usually requires a goal. Well, uh, the Bible says this in 1 Corinthians 9.25, every man that striveth for the mastery is temperate in all things. Now they do it to obtain a corruptible crown, but we an incorruptible. So what I want you to know about the goal of the Christian life is that Jesus is the goal. All right, let's say that together. Jesus is the goal. Say it with me. Jesus is the goal. Some of you have grown up, and mommy's been the goal, and the coach has been the goal, and your pastor's been the goal, but now, now you're in big boy Bible college, and so it's time to learn, if you haven't learned it yet, that the goal of the Christian life is not to please the dean's office. That's a good thing, but that's secondary. The goal of the Christian life is to live for and like Jesus Christ. Jesus is the goal. Let's say that again. Because someone's going to say, ah, oh, you go to Baptist college, you're a bunch of legalists, and it's all about rules, and that's the whole goal, just to get you to live by the rules. And you need to look them right in the eye and say, that is not the whole goal. The whole goal is to live like Jesus Christ. Now, I have some rules in my life that have been established by me, uh, according to biblical principle, to help me become more like Jesus Christ. But the goal is Jesus Christ. And the Bible says in 1 Thessalonians 4 and 1, Furthermore, then we beseech you, brethren, and exhort you by the Lord Jesus, that as ye have received of us how you ought to walk and to please God, ye would abound more and more. In other words, there's a way to walk that pleases God. There's a way to walk that displeases God. And there's a circle of theology that sometimes butts its way into independent Baptist circles, and it basically says... If you're saved uh, and you're, you're sanctified at the moment of salvation, then, then, then you can't do anything else to ever please God. And I'm going to tell you something. That is heresy. Yes, God is pleased with you. You are sanctified. You are justified when you are saved. But even after you're saved, sin displeases God. And righteous living pleases God. Now, we're not living in the sense of trying to appease God and the fact that uh, working our way to salvation. But I want you to hear the verse again, 1 Thessalonians 4, 1. You ought to walk and to please God, the Bible says. How many of you would say, well, it just makes sense that if I'm following Christ and if Jesus is my goal, then as I live for him, it will please God. The Bible says it in 2 Timothy 2, 4. No man that warreth entangleth himself with the affairs of this life, that he may please him who hath chosen him to be a good soldier. Now, there have been times in my Christian life, many times, when I have not pleased God because I have not been a good soldier in certain ways. But it is my desire to please the Lord Jesus Christ. That's my goal. Jesus is the goal Jesus is the reason that we want to live with a good conscience. So exercise requires a goal. And what is the goal? Who is the goal? Jesus, Jesus is the goal. Secondly, exercise requires discipline. It requires discipline. Now, 
1 Corinthians 9, 27, Paul said, But I keep under my body and bring it into subjection, lest that by any means, when I have preached to others, I myself should be a castaway. Now, men, we need to learn how to live with discipline. That means learning how to live with a calendar. That means learning how to set your alarm and getting up when it rings. That means learning uh, that when you're working at a secular workplace and there's uh, pictures in the bathroom, you throw them away. You don't look at them. That means when the bad joke is coming, you turn the other way. And they'll start to call you preacher or deacon, or they'll make fun of you and call you a pestilent fellow. But you're either going to live with discipline or without discipline. But, but exercise requires a goal, and exercise requires discipline. And we're trying to train up some men at West Coast Baptist College who are disciplined in the faith, who are disciplined in their walk with God, who are distinct in their life. We don't need any more of these Gumby Christians that just kind of bend with every whim. We need men who will stand with discipline. So, uh, so this exercise requires a goal. Jesus... Uh, is the goal, but exercise requires discipline. And, and we see it in the secular field. We respect athletes that are just amazingly disciplined. And we see the way they may catch a football or dunk a basketball. How many of you know that didn't just happen? There was a lot of weight training. There was a lot of discipline in order to attain that goal. And uh, I think I read somewhere that Michael Phelps, when he, he, he swims so many miles a day when he was training to be a, an Olympic swimmer, and uh, someone said that he burned, Brother Getch, every time he would swim out there in his morning swim, he would burn 11,200 calories just through that swim uh, going out there. And, and, and so uh, he, he'd say, yeah, I can eat all this food because I'm burning all these calories. The problem with us is we eat all the food, but we don't burn the calories. Amazing discipline. And when we see a swimmer or a, uh, someone in football or some sport, uh, we, we recognize that. But we need to recognize it in the life of Christian leaders. And that includes dying to self. And that includes being filled with the Spirit. So the development of the conscience is something that takes place in the life of a Christian that is seriously looking to walk with the Lord and to live for the Lord. Exercise requires a goal. Exercise requires discipline. So we've seen the definition of the conscience, and we conclude from that we want to live with a good conscience. We see the development of the conscience revolves around a disciplined life focused upon Jesus Christ. And then let's notice finally out of this text, the display of a right conscience. There's going to be a display. It will be obvious to others that you are endeavoring to live with a clear conscience. Now look what verse 16 says, back to our text. Paul says, And herein do I exercise myself to have always a conscience, notice this now, void of offense, notice the word, what's the next word say? Toward. Say it with me. So Paul's thinking, he says, I want my conscience to be void of offense in two directions. Toward God, remember that's who we're seeking to please first, but secondarily toward men. I don't want anything I do to cause someone else to say, ah, I don't want to be a Christian. Oh, I don't want to go to Bible college. He's a big hypocrite. So Paul says, every day I'm wanting my conscience to be right toward God and toward men. Now let's think about this first phrase, toward God. Here was his desire. And the Bible is clear. James 4, 8, cleanse your hands and purify your hearts. We're not to be double-minded. We're to be separated unto God. 1 Samuel chapter 16 is a good illustration. And we see there, as Samuel was looking for the prophet, the Lord said unto Samuel, look not on his countenance or on the height of his stature, because I have refused him. For the Lord seeth not as man seeth. For man looketh on the outward appearance, but the Lord looketh on the heart. So God knows your heart. He knows if you have a good conscience. 
And Paul knew that God knew that. He knew that God was omniscient. And so he said, I exercise myself every day. I'm I'm making decisions based upon this thought process. Does this please the Lord? Now, some people wear a bracelet that says, WWJD, you know, what would Jesus do? And, And some people have other reminders. But the goal is to live in such a way and over such a period of time, you don't need bracelets. You don't need uh, physical reminders. There's, a, there's an abiding relationship with God, and, and He's with you, and He's filling you, and you want to live your life with Him in mind. And so that, that, that comes to your dating. That comes to your music. That comes to your jokes. That comes to the way you keep your room. That comes to the way you approach your studies. It affects your entire life. You want to have a good conscience toward God. Listen, if if you get a C on a test, but you studied and you studied and you prayed and you did your best, you can still have a good conscience toward God. But if you were fooling off the entire week before and playing games and you know staying up late talking, you don't you can't have a good conscience about that. You didn't do your best for the Lord. The Bible says, whatever we do, we do it to glorify the Lord. He says, I want to have a good conscience toward God. And I hope you want that. But then notice what else he says as we close. Void of offense toward God and, what's it say? Toward men. Now, I've had people say to me, I don't care what men think about me. That's a ridiculous statement. No leader would ever say that. I care mostly about what God thinks, but I care greatly that I have the right testimony in this church. See, all, all a pastor has, besides his walk with God and the fact that God knows his heart, is his integrity with the church family. You're not going to be a pastor that's listening to off-color jokes or doing stupid things or watching wicked movies and, and, and just kind of living a loose life and then get up in this pulpit and have anybody respect what you're saying. It does matter what men think. It does matter what your dorm mates think. It does matter what your teachers think. It does matter what your fellow worker thinks over at McDonald's or Chick-fil-A or Michael's Warehouse or wherever you work. It does matter, Paul said. I want to have a good conscience. I don't want anybody to say, well, I would have gone to heaven, but the way he lived, I was disinterested. I I don't want to be a stumbling block that way. Now, there's two ways that you can be right towards your fellow man, and I want to give them to you and we'll close. Number one, by living a sanctified life. A sanctified life. Paul said in 2 Corinthians 4, and I want you to turn there, please. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 2. 2 Corinthians 4, 2 says this. But we have renounced the hidden things of dishonesty, not walking in craftiness, nor handling the word of God deceitfully, but by manifestation of the truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. Very clearly, by the manifestation of the truth, we commend ourselves into this man's conscience. All right? I went to the doctor the other day, and uh, I uh, was was able to, you know, let him tell me what he needed to tell me, lose weight and exercise. (laughs) And then I gave him a gospel tract. And he said, I came to your church four or five years ago. I believe he's Hindu. 
And I've since sent him another track, and I'll see him again in a few weeks, and I'll talk to him some more. Now, had I gone into that doctor's office saying, well, today's not Sunday. I'm not playing preacher today. I'm just going to be a man, just a down-home guy today. I'm just going to throw out some colorful words for this guy. How does that work when you try to talk about Jesus? Now, do you have that passage open, 2 Corinthians 4, 2? It says, commending ourselves to their conscience. Do you see that? In other words, I want my behavior around this doctor who I, who's on my prospect list, I want my behavior, notice what it says, by the manifestation of the truth. Say that phrase with me. Manifestation of the truth. One more time. How many of you are working out in the community? Let me see where you are. Okay. This is what you want to show, the manifestation of the truth. I want him to see Jesus in me. I want him to have to see in me the manifestation of the truth so that it will notice this, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. So now my living with a good conscience is going to touch his conscience that he needs Jesus. So this is what Paul meant. He said, I have a good conscience toward God, but I want to have a right conscience toward men. This is why Satan just is so happy when Christians get into immorality or cuss or get mad or do whatever because he knows unsaved people are watching and he knows saved people are watching. So we must live a sanctified life. Years ago, we had a, a group that went to the Philippines. Dr. Rasmussen was with the group. As is our custom, we practice uh, having the guys look sharp. They didn't wear ties every time. They wore polo shirts, maybe, and khaki pants. And gals wore modest clothing and so forth. And so they go into a hotel lobby. They're checking in. And there's lots of groups from the States that go through the Philippines. And, and a lot of those groups from churches are indistinguishable from a secular group. Everybody following me? Their talk, their dress is indistinguishable. But our group came in, they were well behaved, they were well presented, and the hotel manager came to Dr. Rasmussen and said, excuse me, sir, he was looking at West Coast students, some of our high school students, he said, excuse me, sir, are these, are these Christian people? Dr. Rasmussen said, well, yes, they are. He said, I thought they were. He said, could you tell me, sir, what's the difference between Christian and Catholic? That's like putting a red towel in front of a bull, right? And you know, Dr. Rasmussen led that man to Christ because something about the way our students were living touched his conscience. Does the way you live cause anyone else to desire to be saved? Is your life touching anyone's conscience? Is there an unsaved relative that sees Jesus in you? Is there a junior high or a junior age, junior in high school brother or sister who's watching you and saying, I want to follow Jesus with my life too. This is what it means to have a clear conscience toward God and toward men. And it's done through sanctification. And then it's done finally through soul winning. Through soul winning. May I say that there is no way that you can have a clear conscience toward your fellow man if you are not a soul winner. There's no way that you can be right with your neighbor if you're not trying to lead him to Christ. We have a man in our church, Brother Ricky Stamps. He's a retired deputy sheriff. He grew up in North Carolina. He's a black man. No one in all of his youth ever tried to witness to him. He went to a few churches. He told me black churches that were more music and this and that. Never heard the gospel. 
No one from a predominantly white church ever invited him to their church. He came to California. One day I knocked on his door and I said, my name is Paul Chapel. I'm pastor at Lancaster Baptist Church. I'd like to invite you to come and visit us Sunday. And he said, you want me to come to your church? I said, yeah, I'd love to have you come to our church. And uh, he said something I'll never forget. He said, well, to be honest with you, I've been watching you for the last few years. He said, when I go on patrol, I go around your church and I see you and I see your people. He said, I've seen your TV commercials. I've seen your brochures. He said, I hear what people say. The first thought I had was, boy, I'm glad that nothing he heard or saw would keep him from coming to Lancaster Baptist Church. He came and got saved probably 20 years ago. What a joy to be his pastor. But where did that begin? It started before I ever opened my mouth and talked to him about Jesus Christ. Everybody tracking with me? I know people say, ah, it doesn't matter what you look like. It doesn't matter. You can just live how you want and just kind of be a hippie Christian, whatever, whatever stylistically they want to say. It doesn't matter. I want to tell you something. It actually does matter. People need to see Christ in you. I want you to turn to one final verse, and we'll be done. 1 Peter 3.15. 1 Peter 3.15. And let's stand together for the reading of this verse. First Peter 3, 15 and 16. We'll just take another minute for our seniors to find it. All right. First Peter 3, 15 and 16. I want you to read it with me after having heard all this message about the conscience. Let's read these two verses together. Ready, begin. But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and be ready always to give an answer to every man that asketh you a reason of the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. Having a good conscience, Having a good conscience. What does the Bible say? It says there's going to be some that ask you even. What's the reason of the hope that's in you? Like Dr. Getz said, those prisoners there at Philippi that got saved. There, there's going to be some people that are going to say, you don't seem too worried about Omicron. You don't seem as worried about all this, and you don't seem as worried about this or that. What, what, what's the hope in you anyways? And because of your good conscience, you're going to be able to open the Bible and share with them that your hope is Jesus Christ. Herein do I exercise myself that I might be void of offense toward God and toward men, that my conscience would be void of offense. We're coming to the close of our week of awakening tonight. But I want to tell you that every one of you have influence. Our church is watching you. Our teenagers are watching you. Your family back home, your co-workers. Is your conscience void of offense? You say, well, as far as I know, nobody, nobody thinks, you know, no one's seen in me sin. And, but wait a minute, what about God? Is your conscience void of offense toward him? Is there something in your conscience as I'm speaking right now that's being pricked? Something you've said, done, or do? Is there somebody in this room who, who you had a really good conscience when school started, but it, it's been tainted? There's some, there's some evil that you've allowed Oh, you're not seared. It's not like you feel nothing, but you're not, you're not getting the truth like you once did. 
your conscience is not clear. If there's a small thing, it's just the beginning of an evil conscience. If you need to take an app off your phone, if you need to set some standards for yourself, we don't have to set all the standards for you. You can set the standard for how much time you're talking to so-and-so or where you will be with so-and-so. The Holy Spirit can actually help you men and women to set your own standards if you want to live with a good conscience. Is there someone here that needs to say today, God has spoken to me. My conscience is not 100% right toward him or even toward someone else. And this morning, I'm going to take care of that. 